Now, $10 grocery store wine, nothing wrong with that wine. If you like that, that's what you should drink. But it's just good to know and to understand the difference is that $10 grocery store wine did not age for two years in a $1,500 French oak barrel, okay? There would be no profit margin there, right? Because the cost of production. So today's episode is part one of two because I received a wonderful listener question to talk about what affects the cost and pricing in wine. And so when I started to go through the things I wanted to talk about, I realized there's enough here to make it two episodes. I've also received some great feedback from many of you since starting the podcast that you like the shorter, more to the point episodes when they are sort of these teaching style with teacher Nikki at the front of the classroom, my favorite. So I have split the episode into two. So this is part one where I'm going to talk about three of the five things that drive cost of production, how much is it to make a bottle, and therefore, what is the price? And does it matter? And what what do you need to know about that? So before we jump in, if you haven't already downloaded my wine tips cheat sheet, make sure you visit my website, sipwithnikki.com forward slash resource. Again, sipwithnikki.com forward slash resource. I will send that right to your inbox. And it's just super helpful with all of these types of tips to help make sense of wine. So why does wine cost what it costs? Here we go. So I received a really great listener question. Listener question from Eddie. Shout out to Eddie. And he wanted to know if I could talk about how wine is priced and the cost breakdown and what makes a difference between a $15 bottle versus a $100 bottle. Is there a difference? So great question, Eddie. So here we go. I'm going to talk about five specific categories of things that lead to pricing in wine. And the first four are very measurable and sort of quantitative, you know, they are numeric and things that really do drive difference in pricing. And then the fifth category I'm going to talk about is a little bit more ambiguous, where it's a little bit harder to quantify, but it certainly does affect pricing as well. So we'll go through each one of those today. Before we do, here's the overarching thought, and this is the opinion of me, Nikki Lamberti, just based on the decade or so that I've been studying, making, buying, drinking, you know, this is kind of my theory that I've amassed. So take it for what you will. But in my opinion, there is a very measurable difference in quality from a $10 bottle of wine to a 20 And there is a very measurable difference in a $20 bottle to a 40 or 50. And once again, usually pretty logic measurable difference in quality from a 50 to 100 because of the things we're going to talk about today. 
from a hundred to a five hundred to a thousand dollar bottle? Is there a measurable difference in quality? Well, at that upper level, now we're getting into some of the things we're going to talk about in the fifth category, which is more perception, scarcity, things like that. So I truly believe this. I have been fortunate in my life to taste many different wines in many different price points, certainly from the $10 price point. And I've been really lucky, especially through studying and when I did my wine program at the Culinary Institute of America, when I've done educational tastings at Pride Mountain Vineyards, the winery, I've tasted three and four and five and $800 bottles of wine, not regularly, it's a special occasion, but I have tasted them. So Certainly not what I'm drinking every day, (laughs) but there are some things that really drive difference. So let's break it down. The first thing that affects pricing of wine, we're going to call farming, agriculture, that piece of it, right? Making wine is farming. Wine growing, grape growing, having a vineyard, right? That's where it all starts in the vineyard. So there's a real and true cost of land, and vineyards, and it really varies from different parts of the world. Why? Well, a couple different things. Weather, climate, soil, right? Napa and Sonoma, this area where I live and where I make my wine, has some soils that don't exist anywhere else in the world. So it's unique. And soil definitely does drive differences in the wine. So between that and between the very Mediterranean climate that we have here, where we get all of our rain, like today, it's pouring as I'm doing this, all of our rain is in the winter, and then most of the year is kind of hot and dry, you know, that is perceived as really ideal for vineyards. But There are places all around the world that have grapevines and vineyards that have very different weather and very different soils. So it's kind of like when you find areas in or on the planet, I should say, where it's the perfect storm of weather and soil and climate and sunshine and UV. Well, first of all, that's going to drive up the price of the vineyard land, which is going to have a real and true cost on the price of the bottle of wine that comes from that land. The other thing related to farming is labor. So in most high-end, well-made wines, again, where I live, Napa, Sonoma, where they're you know, smaller production and, and smaller estates, everything's done by hand. The vines are planted by hand. They are trellised and trained on their wire system by hand. Everything is picked by hand with a little knife cluster by cluster. The pruning, which is happening now in the winter, is done with a pair of pruning shears, not unlike rose bushes. So there is a real and true cost to that. And why do people do it? Well, because the belief has always been there's a perception of attention to detail and quality and a gentleness on the vines themselves versus doing a lot of those things, especially the picking of the grapes during the harvest with machines. Now, larger vineyards, you know, sprawling acres and acres and acres and miles and miles of vineyards, those you will see machine harvesting equipment used for that. So that is a real and true measurable cost difference, right? Also, when it comes to farming, the type of grape that you're growing 
is going to directly affect the cost of its production into that bottle of wine. So for example, Cabernet Sauvignon, most people know it well, it's found easily, but there's a really big price range in it. And often some of the most expensive bottles of wine that you'll see on a store or in a menu are Cabernet Sauvignon. Well, why does it tend to be more expensive? A couple things. Generally, Cabernet is a smaller grape. When you literally look at a cluster of the grapes hanging on the vine, if it is Cabernet Sauvignon, which is a red grape, they are literally smaller than a counterpart cluster of Merlot grapes or Pinot Noir or Zinfandel or even Sangiovese. So who cares? What does that mean? Well, smaller grapes means we need more grapes to make a bottle, right? There's a cost to that. Smaller grape also means that there is generally um, more skin and less plumpy, fleshy, grapey part, right? Now, this isn't a bad thing because so much of what makes the wine the wine, especially in red wines, is coming from the skin, color and tannin and texture and phenolics, which is just a fancy chemistry word for all the things that are giving us what we're smelling and tasting in the glass. So much of that is coming from the skin of the grape. So when you have a a smaller grape like Cabernet Sauvignon, you have more of that skin. Well, it means a couple things. Number one, tannin, which primarily comes from the skin of the grape, a little bit from the seeds. And we'll talk about aging and oak that influences tannin as well. But Tannin, which gives you that kind of dry, chalky, astringent feeling in the mouth comes from the skin. So a smaller grape like Cabernet is going to have a higher amount of tannin. And it means that we have to age that wine longer in the barrel, typically, before we bottle it and sell it. Because tannin softens with time. So the longer a wine like Cabernet Sauvignon or something with high tannin, Petit Syrah, for example, one of my favorites... The longer they sit in the barrel, the tannins tend to soften and smooth out, and it just makes it more approachable and more drinkable before you put it in the bottle and sell it. So generally, it takes longer to make those wines because you have to let them sit longer, and there is a true cost, carrying cost, as we call it, to having that product in a barrel for a year and a half, two years, or three years before you can sell it. So that would be a a measurable difference as well, okay? So in farming, cost of the land, cost of the labor, and type of the grape, that wraps up our first category of what drives pricing. The second category would be volume, right? And this is like true of, I think, any product on the planet when you think about something being small lot, right? Very limited production. Generally, it is just a higher cost per unit to produce that. I've experienced this very personally as Michael and I got our own Solovato wine project launched with our 2019 wine. And and the first vintage of wine that we did was literally one barrel of wine. So it was less than 300 bottles. So when ordering bottles and corks and labels especially, the price per of each of those things is higher because they still have to run the printing press for the labels, whether you're getting 300, 3,000 or 30,000. So inherently there's a higher cost for especially things like packaging. Whereas volume wise, if you have more, generally it brings down your cost of some of those related things. And then also just when you think about 
larger production wineries, a wine that you can think of right now off the top of your head where you can find it in any grocery store if they sell wine or any bottle shop, wine shop. And if you listen to my earlier episode about shopping in the store, generally these are going to be the ones down on the lower shelf, right? And a lot of times they're in a bigger bottle. Why? Because they make more volume. And so instead of aging in 59-gallon barrels, which is expensive, and we'll talk about that in a moment, they have huge tanks that hold thousands and thousands of gallons. And so everything is just on on a bigger scale, which believe it or not, and again, this is kind of true of just economics, right? Not that I'm the person that should be teaching you anything about economics, but at least this much I know. When you're making hundreds of thousands of cases, your price per unit, per bottle, is simply less because of that volume and that your cost is sort of you know amortized or spread out over all of those many, many bottles versus a teeny tiny producer, Solovato, who is making 286 bottles. <laughs> You still have to pay the grape growers and you still have to have a place to make it and you still have to turn the lights on and buy the barrel and all of that. So it is more expensive generally when it is a lower production as far as number or volume. So that is the second category. Third category, and I sort of alluded to that, has to do with aging. So we're going to really two things in aging, the length of time, as I mentioned earlier, but then also the the vessel that you're aging it in. So I mentioned wine barrels. If you can envision a typical wine barrel, many of them are French oak. French oak is used most widely all around the world in winemaking. Now, there is American oak, right? There is Hungarian oak, but you hear about those less often. French is most common just because of the grain of the wood and kind of the subtle spice notes that it imparts into the wine. Well, to purchase a brand new French oak wine barrel that holds about 300 bottles of wine right now is typically around $1,500. Now, you can reuse that barrel year after year if you don't necessarily need the strength of the new effect of it, right, if you're more subtle. But you still got to pay $1,500 for each one, okay? Now, $10 grocery store wine, nothing wrong with that wine. If you like that, that's what you should drink. But it's just good to know and to understand the difference is that $10 grocery store wine did not age for two years in a $1,500 French oak barrel, okay? There would be no profit margin there, right? Because the cost of production. So if you're drinking that value price wine and it is oaky and vanilla and spicy and clovey, which are things that barrels typically impart into wine, how did that get in there? Well, there's faster, cheaper ways to emulate that oakiness in a value price wine. Oak powder, just like it sounds, okay? So age wine in a in a big stainless steel tank that you only have to purchase one time and you can use it forever and ever and ever and tens of thousands of gallons of volume at a time, like I said. And then you can add something called oak powder, just like it sounds. Oak chips, right? There are producers that will purchase older barrels and sort of ground them up and essentially make it into almost like a tea bag that they're submerging into that stainless steel tank. So that's generally how you're getting oakiness. 
Now, I say these things with no judgment, because again, this is purely about education. But here's what I can tell you. If you can't tell the difference, then stick with that value price wine if that's what you like, right? But the first time you have a wine that was aged for two years in a authentic, you know, French oak or American oak barrel, you can tell the difference. Well, now you know. And it's almost like you know too much at that point, right? But that is a real and true measurable difference. It's just literally the the vessel that we say that the wine is aging, whether it's a standard size oak barrel or a big, huge puncheon. People call them vats. <laughs> You'll see those used a lot more in, in Europe, but a lot of American wineries use them as well. I've mentioned stainless steel tanks. Even concrete is kind of gaining in popularity. It almost looks like a big egg with concrete, right? Those things are not cheap to be molded and delivered and assembled. So again, there's a cost to all of that. It does make a difference. Also, when we talk about aging, we're going to talk about aging in the bottle, okay? So I was talking about aging wine in, in its barrels or its tanks before it gets bottled. But then once it's in the bottle... There's an aging process that can or cannot happen depending on when you buy it and when you drink it. And when you buy it, was it a young wine? Was it quote unquote fresh? Is it something where the grapes were picked two or three years ago and just put it in the bottle a few months ago and went right to the store shelf? Well, then that's typically going to be a lower price wine versus if it's an older vintage, right? If you were to go in the store today in 2024 and and find a beautiful wine shop where they had a 2014 wine sitting on the shelf. Grapes were picked 10 years ago and it was bottled seven years ago and it's been aging in a cellar. There's going to be a price to that. Why? Scarcity. There's simply less of that particular wine on the planet because people have been drinking it. So back to economics, right? It's kind of a supply and demand thing. Now, because the older wine is more expensive, does that mean it's quote unquote better? Well, that's up to you to decide, right? I'm going to encourage you to go back to the earlier episode where I talk about aging in wine and what it does to the wine, and then you can decide for yourself. But again, when a wine has been cellared, um, generally that's going to increase the cost and the perceived value of it because... The measurable part is there are simply less of those bottles to go around. So that was our third category of things that affect pricing in wine, aging, length of time, the vessel and the cost, and then also the aging in the bottle. So there you have the first three elements that affect the cost and pricing of a wine. But what are number four and number five? Well, stay tuned next week. I'll keep you in suspense until then, and then I will cover the last two. While you're waiting for the conclusion of the episode, it's a great time to go back in our catalog. We have a catalog now. We've hit 11 episodes. We're so fancy now. So feel free to go back and catch up if you've missed any. Like, have you heard Aunt Vivian yet? Like, that's the title of the episode. It's just Aunt Vivian, and that's all it needs to be, and it's magic. So feel free to go back and catch up on those. And please, please, please like the podcast in the platform that you are listening in. Feel free to share it. Most platforms, there's literally an arrow button where you can text someone the link of the episode and they can enjoy it 
please do that for us. You can rate it. Hey, at the time I'm recording this today, we just hit 20 five-star ratings in Apple Podcasts. Woohoo! We'd love 20 more. Why? Because the higher the ratings are, the more the podcast is made available for more people to listen. And we got to get the word out there so everybody can be sipping with Nikki. So please go ahead and leave a rating. And we'd be really grateful if you would take a moment and share your thoughts and actually write a review to the podcast. And then finally, you can buy me a glass of wine. You can buy producer Catherine a bourbon. We are working hard over here and loving every minute of it, creating all this wonderful content for you. And so if you'd like to show your appreciation, there's a link in the show notes here to support the podcast. We sure do appreciate you listening to be continued next week. But in the meantime, sip well. Sip with Nikki is hosted by Nikki Lamberti. Production and sound mixing by Catherine Bryan. You can always send your listener questions to Nikki at sipwithnikki.com or find us on the Sip with Nikki Facebook page or visit us on Instagram at Nikki Lamberti. Thanks for listening. We can't wait to sip with you. This is Sip with Nikki, a production of Take 10 Studios.